0: Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political, and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges internal communication is a crucial function that helps organizations achieve lasting change this podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity we really hope you enjoy listening Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Catherine Barnard and Dominic Walters. And in this episode, we're really excited to be chatting about this new, exciting project, looking at the history of internal communication from the 1880s. Yes, we have got that amount of history as a professional community. And we're really excited to welcome uh, Dr. Michael Heller, who is a business and marketing historian, who I Met. I'm going. We've been chatting. I think for about oh, good five years or so now. I would say, yeah, Yeah, about getting this project going and the real passion for looking at the history of internal communication. And we're also joined by Dr. Joe Chick. Also from Brunel University, who is the research fellow and leading the work on this project, which has been a lot of work has gone in from these guys to get the funding from the Economic uh, and Social Research Council. And this will be a really, really great opportunity for us as a professional community to not only understand our credibility, our background, but also show how we've made such an impact to not only businesses, but also society as well. So, welcome, Joe, and welcome, Michael. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast and to find finally be able to talk about this project that we've been chatting about for so many years. So just to kick us off, tell us about the project and how it came about.
1: Okay, so it's a big project. Um, we've managed to win um, £630,000 from the Economic, Social and Research Council, which is basically a, uh, for the listeners is a government organisation. So the government gives grant money to to everything, to science, to, you know, um, to the humanities business through the ukri the united kingdom research institute and part of that is one of their bodies is the economic and social research council which tends to deal more with business and the social sciences and um so yes so we managed to win that grant which is huge and um the title of it is actually an institutional history of um, internal communications because what we're actually looking at and is it's not just a history it's looking at how internal comms institutionalized itself over the course of really about 140 150 years so how so what we mean by institutionalization is basically you know if if you'd gone into an organization 100 years ago you wouldn't expect to see internal communications it, it, most organizations didn't have it whereas within 50 years ago if you'd gone back to that same organization and it wasn't there you would ask, why don't you have it? Because it had become normal and expected. And, and, and that that's the idea of that. So uh, big project. We're looking at 20 organisations. What we've done is we've divided it between two groups of archives organisations. One is professional organisations, such as the Institute of Internal Communication, which, of course, has a very long history, goes back to 1949, uh, probably one of the first internal communication professions you know organizations in the world and, and that's one thing actually we, we really are keen to emphasize that that britain actually it, you know we originated this britain alongside the united states were the first two countries to develop internal comms you know and it's very much part of our kind of business organizational dna and you can see that in, in the archives there's just so much stuff that we find all the time so on the one side we've got the professions we've got um Institute of Intel Comms, Childhood Institute of Personal Development, Industrial Society, CIPR. There's a whole load of organisations. And then on the other side, we've got organisations that we're going to look at, like Unilever, um, British Airways and so forth.
2: Yeah. And I think I suppose the other thing I might add to that is that uh, there's been quite a lot of work done with company magazines in the past. And the thing that quite often uh, they've been used as a way of studying the organisations and they've not actually really been studied in their own right as a form of communication. And the other thing I want to break away with is the idea that sometimes business historians have only really looked at company magazines as if this is the only way that people communicated. And I guess the other thing this project then trying to do is to look at some of the different forms of communication that came along later. So company magazines do dominate kind of up to about the 1960s and 1970s. But then as we've started posting about on our blog, you start getting what they call briefing groups then, which is uh, what we call team meetings now. And of course, then uh, with digital communication, everything's changed a lot. So I guess that's some of the, uh, the idea with the project is to break away from the kind of things that've been studied in the
1: past. Yeah, and, and that that's really important. And w- within that idea of institutional history, and that's one of the reasons why we use institutional theory. Is you know, it's it's been around for over a hundred years, and it, it's used in in the social sciences. It's actually a sociolog- sociological theory, but we use it in, in many areas. And it, it's the idea that when you have institutionalization, when something becomes ingrained, it becomes expected. What you also have is really interesting. Is deinstitutionalization and reinstitutionalization so that's how things change you know we've seen that with taxis haven't we you know people now take ubers <laughs> you know it's it's the, you know the idea that you would get a taxi now is no so like, i'll get an uber so it's it's kind of been deinstitutionalized re-institutionalised. and so we see that with the magazines they are the dominant form and of course in your organisation you see that because your original name was the british association of industrial editors yeah so you had this editorial logic, but by, I think, the 90s, you rename yourself, you know, the Institute of Internal Commons, Business in the Community Internal Commons, and that's re-institutionalisation that we are seeing very strongly in the archives.
3: I think um, that I'm really interested in this, because, as you know, I look at the future of work and the future of internal communication, and I'm always reflecting on the fact that, actually, if we take a look, and we take the time. We have so many lessons that we can learn from history, and yet we tend not to learn from history as a overall. So, you guys starting to delve into the history. What has been your most noticeable finding so far? Do you think?
1: Great, um, Joe to because Joe's been doing most of the heavy lifting, most of the archival research. So, Joe to yeah, well, I suppose one thing that's uh, interesting, I suppose, is that there, there's no kind of
2: single moment where internal comms gets founded. And uh, looking at uh, things from about a century ago, is there's organisations like the CIPD, which is still around now, which is an entirely different organisation when, when it gets set up. And it's called something like the Association of Welfare Workers then. And it's all part of a welfare programme around about the time of the First World War. And this kind of welfare agenda particularly gets pushed after the First World War. And... Uh, communication is one of the ways that it's seen as going hand-in-hand hand with this programme of trying to improve worker welfare. And it's across time, of course, it's gradually morphed into being a very different institutions. So that's certainly uh, one thing that's interesting is just the way it sort of gradually evolves
4: and
2: are completely different. And then I guess, I suppose, in terms of like specific things we've found, the source of the month that we posted about on our blog uh, last month, just to push our website a bit. But it was an interesting finding in that, which was talking about the origin of team meetings. And I was kind of writing on that blog about how nowadays we kind of take it for granted. Everyone knows how to run a team meeting, but there was actually training courses and things like that on how to run a team meeting in. I think it was sometime in the 1970s, that source, I think that we found. Well, maybe it was the 80s, actually. And around about that time, they're actually training people on how to do this because it was a kind of innovative way of how to communicate with your employees. And what was particularly interesting in one article that someone wrote for the magazine of the Industrial Society was they were actually talking about how we need to institutionalise this new form of communication. So actually, it's interesting that they themselves at the time were conscious of what we're talking about now, this idea that you have to institutionalise a way of communication so that it
1: becomes second nature rather than something that seems odd and unusual to people. Yeah, that was a huge find. It was massive because, you know, you've got to understand that when we did this research grant application, and, you know, the, we were competing against thousands of people. I mean, I think, you know, we were delighted with this. And I know you guys were. It's a real vote of confidence, I think, in internal comms that the government is. You know, I'd also say, and this is really important, we think we've looked around, it's probably the biggest grant that's ever been given to business history. And I think that's, that's huge. You know, normally if you get a grant... To do organizational business history, you normally get about, if you're lucky, a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand to get six hundred and thirty thousand. And within our community, within our business history, people were amazed at this, that we received so much money. And we emphasized a lot, you know, about how relevant internal comms is today. It is, you know, and, and I think we were a bit lucky that we were we applied for it during COVID when I think internal comms really came into its own. You know, right. And I mean, we noticed it in our university, everybody was doing internal comms. And so um, I think but that was amazing because we had to sit down, we had to think about we couldn't just say we want to do a history. We had to come up with a theory that would kind of make it more, I suppose, academically, intellectually more legitimate. And we chose institutional theory because it's a great way of looking at organizational history and yeah i was amazed when joe found that it was like that's exactly what we were talking about and we found it's lovely when that happens when you find something in an archive which kind of it confirms that what you're going down that pathway is is correct i think the other thing i i would also say because obviously I've, i've been looking at company magazines and internal comms now for 15 years i've been you know it's a lot of research that a lot big part of my career has gone into looking at this and um I mean, there's an incredible... And it's actually in the archive of the Institute of Internal Comms. It's one of your the early magazines. And I think it was in the 60s where they actually said the publications of company magazines was bigger than the publication of national newspapers. And that, that was the 60s. That That's just incredible, you know. When you, when you look at this, the size of internal comms, and I think what Joe said before is very true, is that what most business historians do is they use company magazines as a means to an end they go into an archives and they say you know i want to look at work and so they look at magazines as a way of looking at work i want to look at change they do that but what we did is we said no these magazines and other forms as joe briefing groups they have to be looked at in their own right you know they are really important so so yeah so for us i think there's been lots of big finds i think and and we're hoping that it will just carry on what joe has
3: just highlighted wow that's that's really chimed with me and the idea that during the 1970s there was a mission to educate people on how to run effective meetings is so opposite because against the backdrop of the push-pull ongoing debate around hybrid work as we all know many organisations are trying to pull employees back into the office now. But there is this level of resistance because of a lacklustre perception of the experience of going into the office, which actually stems back to, in many instances, really mediocre meetings. And so you're finding, Joe, that during the 1970s, there was this Industry wide education on how to run an effective meeting. Gosh, if we unearthed that and really explored it and unpacked it, that could be so impactful for right now because actually, too few of us know how to run an effective meeting, how to build engagement and community in order to deliver viable business outcomes you know there's something really rich in that which kind of comes back to my point around how much we have to learn from history when we put our minds to it.
2: That's interesting yeah so maybe it's been taken too much for granted that it's institutionalized and that people know how to do it and actually yeah maybe like say the education on how to do a good meeting has disappeared too much maybe then.
1: Yeah I I think so And, and you know so we have a method in, in history, it's quite sexy actually, and it's called triangulation. We triangulate, you know, it makes it sound very... Pri- and what that means is, it's a bit like if you, you imagine a, a detective, you know, or, or a lawyer, if you were trying to prove something, you try and get... A piece of evidence and then another separate piece of evidence. And if the two came together, you say, well, this must be true. You know, because I've got two separate witnesses that have said that. This, If you find three, even better, yeah? That's what we do. Because the danger with history, of course, is that what you find in an archive is just very fragmented. There's just bits of what's left. That's not what was actually in the past, if that makes sense, yeah? You just get a bits of fragments. And the other big problem, this is what we call validity, is the idea what's been left behind somebody left that purposefully it's not objective if that makes sense and it's usually the the people who were in power wanted you know it's this idea that the victors write history so as a kind of research profession as a culture we're always very skeptical about what we find in an archive we don't see that as the truth we have to question it and interrogate it and then what we often do is we go to other archives and if we start seeing similar things in different archives then we know there must be some validity there has to be some truth there's got to be i mean validity actually is not not a good word it has veracity it has there's evidence if that makes sense and one thing I, it's interesting because joe found this this was a few years ago i was researching in the archive hong kong shanghai bank and i actually found training. Material for managers to hold briefing groups. It, it was incredible. And you, you found these leaflets saying, This is how to hold a meeting, you know, this is what you need to do, these are the points and so forth. And what was really interesting was we actually found quite a lot of stuff there. And it was just by accident that it had been kept. Yeah, we were really happy when we found that. And so um, we're off to Unilever in April and we're hoping to find some more stuff up there as well.
4: That's very interesting because uh, I think back in 20, 2000, I was involved with training line managers to communicate at Unilever. So it'll be interesting to see what you what you find. And I remember the industrial society model, which was very much a cascade model. It was about line managers broadcasting information. And so I think it'd be very interesting to compare that with how organizations train line managers now, which tends to be much more about connection and conversation, interpreting information, bringing it to life. So I think just looking at the the history and the progression of training of managers would be an interesting insight to see how organisations are shifting the role of line managers when it comes to comms. But also what you're doing for me is fascinating because I I love history and obviously I've been heavily involved in internal comms. But I think it's also really interesting for people in in the profession because being candid, there's still, I think, a bit, if we're honest amongst ourselves, of a cultural cringe amongst internal communicators. I think for three reasons. One is that we still feel as though we're a new profession. And I think what you're saying is you're not. You've been around for a long time. You've got a very established and effective history. The second thing is one of our golden objectives, our, our holy grail, if you like, is, is how do we prove value? And I'm going to come on to that in a second. But I think that one of the things that you're doing is helping us prove value. But I think it's also about we are a real profession. You know, we're not just a new, newfangled idea. We are a real profession with a history. So listening to you talk, all those, that's going to be great to get that information. But let's hone in on the value. Because most people listening to this will have been and are going to be challenged by line managers or by senior leaders to say, look, show us the value that you're offering. And the measure of value is one of the big things that communicators want to prove. So, Joe and Michael, looking back on what you've seen so far, what value have you seen internal communication adding to organizations historically and, I guess, continually? Big question, I
1: know. Yeah, no, it's it's massive. It's huge. And, I mean, uh, yeah, that would probably take us all day if we had to answer that properly. But I think one of the things that happens, and, and again, we forget this, is that you you've got to understand that in the 19th century, you, you didn't have big organisations. So most organisations were very small. They were family-run. There would be maybe four, five, six people. They weren't organisations that, you know, you you know dombey and son you know that would be the kind of idea they were family-run organizations and the idea of what we have today and don't get me wrong internal comms can operate in a small organization but what we have today of course are these much bigger organizations that were used to hundreds and thousands of people and those organizations first emerged in britain towards the end of the 19th century i mean the first ones were the railways and they started and they started introducing managers that's really important right because if you're a family-run business your managers are your family right it will be you or your brother or your sons will but what you see this emergence of these big organizations and so when i was doing my initial research they as well as the railways you would have organizations like banks yeah the post office obviously you know so there would be both in the private and the public sector insurance companies and utilities you know gas companies and so forth and they were very afraid of growth because even though they wanted it they realized that that growth broke down relationships within the organization you no longer had that personal relationship you didn't know who people were and they were very aware of you know what became known as enemy that people would become you know that they would become disengaged. They just wouldn't know what was going on. And and so how companies dealt with that problem of growth is they introduced internal communication. That's basically where it originates from. I think that is the key. And we still see that today. I mean, if you look at internal comms and one of the core concepts we've already heard you you know this word is engagement, employee engagement, and that issue goes back over 100 years it's not new it's it's a big problem that organizations face and i think over time organizations realize that to be effective organizations to be more efficient to operate well both on a how would i say this on a physical sense you know we can produce more products we can give better service but also on an ideological sense we feel like we are an organization we have a strong culture we have a strong identity you know and this that that symbolic and the material are as important as each other in organizations we know this they started developing internal comms and in time you start seeing this concept of employee voice you know that we you know in order for us to be strong we have to hear from our workers we have to get you know both ideas to develop new products but also what later becomes this idea of What's it called? Organizational citizenship that, you know, you become a strong citizen. you, You want to be part of that organization. You commit yourself to that. You know, that's so I think that was the core idea of that. And what's really interesting as well is we've seen different streams of internal comms historically. So one of the original ones was welfare, industrial welfare. This idea that if you want workers to come to your company, stay in your company, work for your company, you have to look after them. Yeah. So you see companies start developing things like organizational sport, you know, uh, pensions, benefits, widow's benefits, and so forth. And a, part of that concept of welfare was internal communication. You have to talk to work. So you gave them magazines. Although, interestingly, if you do look, I mean, I, I mean, that what I've just said, then is actually slightly wrong because some of the original magazines, what we've done, this is amazing. They weren't started by the companies. They were started by workers workers started their magazines and then companies later on started thinking oh this is interesting yeah? so that that's amazing i mean we the oldest magazine we found is uh, the ibis magazine from the prudential insurance company and that is dated back to 1878 i mean that's incredible that's really old you know, and that magazine was not founded by the company. It was founded by employees, and then the company supported it. And I think that's really interesting with these later ideas of employee empowerment, voice, and so forth. And but it, it changes over time. If that makes sense. And I mean, you know, it sounds a bit academic, but we call them discourses. They're basically conversations that are going on in the magazine. And one of the oldest ones we found is welfare, but we found other ones. We found, for example, we call it brand community marketing internal marketing and that's old it's not new we, we tend to think of this as happening in the 80s we found stuff like in the post office magazine where they're saying to their employees in their magazine look at these new products we've got for consumers and that's what we found that in shell you know all the product so that idea of internal marketing as part of your internal comms you know educating your workers informing them again it's old so it's huge, I think, internal communication. It's got lots of different traditions and it's a lot older than we think it is. And what we've also realised is it's a it's a core element of organisations. You can't have organisations without internal communication. If there was no internal communication, the organisation would just fall apart, basically. And I think the work that we've done has uh, kind of put the way that magazines
2: uh, I guess a century ago been used into three different groups which uh, Michael was kind of talking a bit about there and that sort of does kind of reflect I guess the sort of three different ways in which comms was being valued I guess from the start so there's uh, one thing that they call esprit de corps which is basically I guess kind of talk about the organisation as a family so that was I guess one of the ways in which it was valued was to create a bit of a sense of family and to I guess get a kind of community spirit between the workers because that was seen as a way of I guess getting things to a Function more efficiently. And then there's uh, the one uh, that Michael was talking about their brand community, where you're kind of actually, I guess, advocating your own products to try and make your employees then become ambassadors for your company by kind of getting them kind of talking in the kind of uh, same kind of rhetoric that the managers would uh, want for, for promoting their products. And then I guess, yeah, the last one was one called democratic polity which is kind of where it you kind of imagine your organisation as being a community in itself and everyone's kind of a citizen of it and it's then I guess communication acts as an outlet for people to kind of air their I guess disagreements with the way things are being run and you can get a dialogue going between workers and managers as a way of I guess trying to get things to reform in a way that makes things run more efficiently and so I guess the fact that they're the kind of three types of dialogue that we see in the magazines kind reflects the ways that they were being valued at the time.
4: And I think just to reinforce that, those three types of dialogue still very much the case. If you look at the issues that affect internal communicators, there's this ongoing tension between who do we serve? Are we there to help people understand stuff and raise issues? Are we there to make sure that the message of the organisation is put across? And I think finding the balance between that has been an ongoing tension. So it's really interesting you spotted that.
0: Yeah, I agree, and uh, just to pick up now as well. And then, uh, like I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, I mean, myself and Michael in particular have been have been chatting about this project and this funding for for a number of years. And it's just every conversation I've had with Michael and with Joe as well, I learn something new, and it, and I, and I always feel like it makes you stand taller. It drives that credibility. But actually, as you just said, Dom, and what we've just heard is what we've been learning from the past is absolutely where we are now: community and spirited. But I, I also know as well in our conversation, and particularly with regards to the funding and the conversations that we've been having as as one of the partners, and hopefully you're going to come and our, our archive will feature as part of this as well, is the need to demonstrate the impact of this. So how can we? And we're we going to be reaching out to members as well to help us through that journey and at the end of it as well. But it's really important to, to demonstrate that side of the impact from the past into our present. So... I obviously feel incredibly proud. I'm learning stuff every day and and I feel more enlightened and more able to talk about the history of internal communication. But from your perspectives, what do you hope internal communicators will learn from this project as we say that impact, that pre and post is going to be so important part of, of the funding and what we're trying to achieve?
2: I think one of the things I've learned from working with the Institute of Internal Communication is that the kind of sense you've talked about of how quite often people working in internal communication didn't necessarily choose to go into it as a career and it's something they sort of uh, fell into in a sense, but then quite often they're very enthusiastic about it afterwards. So that once they are in it, so and uh, one of your objectives as an institute is to try and create more of a sense of professional identity. And you've got that campaign at the moment, I chose I see, haven't you, where you're trying to make it a career that people would actively decide that they want to go into from the start to try and create this whole idea that there's give it a distinct identity and i think having a past is quite an important part of that so that's i guess one of the things i'm hoping to do is that by creating this history there'll be a sense of more of a sense of identity around the profession and as you've also kind of said a lot of people even working in it don't realize quite how far back internal comms actually goes so i think that's one important thing that it can add to it and then I suppose there's also, obviously, as we've kind of been talking on the way along, there are actually lessons you can learn from the past because sometimes things that have been done in the past, like the training on uh, team meetings, have kind of been forgotten about. So there are things, we, I guess, more practical lessons as well that we might learn from the past. And hopefully there'll be more of those that we might be uncovering as we go along.
1: Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And. You know, one thing we're looking at in this project is actually, and it is fascinating, is the concept of professionalisation, what it means to be a professional and and, and how that happens. Um, I think this was in the 1990s. There was a historian called Perkin and uh, he wrote a book, a really interesting book called The Professionalisation of Society. And that's really interesting because if you think about that today, and particularly if you're... You know, dare I say the word middle class? You know, if you refer to yourself, you often talk about your profession. You know, this is my profession. This is what I do. It again, it gives you a sense of status, of meaning. You know, I am. You know, I've been educated. I'm training. I have unique knowledge, which is important for for this. But. That idea of professionalising was was not always there. I mean, you know, in the 19th century, there were very few professions. What was it? There the were doctors, lawyers and the church. That was it. You know, there, there weren't professions like engineers and managers and, you know, pharmacists. What happens in the 19th and 20th century is these groups begin to professionalise. They begin to develop an identity. They say, this is who we are. Right we are important you know we have a right to do this job you know and what the profession does is it gives value to its members but it also gives value to them as a collective if you want to do this you have to deal with us so they start developing relationships with bigger institutions government you know universities so forth and uh what's really interesting is a key part of our research isn't just about the history of internal comms it's about the history of the internal communication profession how that develops the idea that you know internal comms becomes a professional activity in an organization and that there are groups of people who identify with that activity that that's that's a fascinating history in the same way as you know for example marketing right i mean uh, you know how long has marketing been around you know was there marketing in the 19th century no there wasn't right was there marketing in most companies in 1930 no there wasn't it only becomes a profession after the Second World War, and it's really interesting actually. After the war, you begin to see groups professionalising in communication. So you start seeing marketing professionalised, public relations professionalizes HR. It's a little bit early, but it, it starts. And of course, internal comms. That that that's fascinating. And I think you know a key aspect of being a profession is having an idea of your history, yeah, because that gives you legitimacy to say, well, we have the right to represent this area of business organization because of our history we've been doing it for so long and one thing we have noticed is that internal comms hasn't yet got that history it's got bits of it you guys have done some good stuff in your anniversaries you bring out books so i'm not saying there isn't a history of internal comms but it's if you compare it with other professions Yep. it's very fragmented and we're, we're, we're hoping to you know do something with that obviously that's why you're such an important partner and we've got this great relationship because i think you guys see that need as well
0: absolutely and it's been so funny and there's so much that just resonates with me as you talk about it and this week for example you know we've been um, as the Institute back out doing a roadshow, you know going back to that theory of we're a community we want to develop community spirit back into us as an institute and as you said next year we're going to be is going to be the iIC 75th anniversary and actually our founding members in 1949 at the National cash registers office which I think has some reference to history as well Michael which I'm sure we spoke about once as well they came to together and constitutionalized to professionalise internal communication and to drive standards. And that's something we've been trying to do for, for over 75 years. But if we have that story that needs to be stitched together and told more strongly, then perhaps there's an awareness. And so, for example, being out on the roadshow this week, and I was also at the London School of Economics this week, trying to talk to undergraduates about a career in internal comms because of our I Choose I See campaign. And The amount of people that sort of go, this is brand new information to me, but I've been also telling our members about this project. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that is fascinating. I didn't know about our history. My gosh, that makes me feel more credible when I pulled out some of that information and things that you shared just the, the light bulb moments and that sense of pride and things that are happening. And when we then embed that into our profession map now. And so from, from our point of view as IOIC, it's really exciting. And I think that it will help us stitch together that story that, that just, just so impactful and so credible and so inspiring. And it helps you, I think, stand that bit prouder as well. Kat, I can see you're burning to
3: ask, ask a question. Go on Kat. It's not a question so much as an observation and it, We're at this real crossroads with work and how we work and what the future might entail for us. And I know within the institute community, we've been having conversations in recent weeks about what impact new technology like ChatGPT might have on the profession. And, you know, there's challenges and there are opportunities that will stem from these emerging technologies. But, you know. On the one hand, we get to create the future that we want for ourselves. But I come back to this point about what history can teach us. And Michael, you said something that really struck a chord for me about, I think you were talking about marketing and internal marketing and the fact that these things didn't exist 100 years ago. And I think it's really important as we look to the future to look to the past in parallel We have to see the water we swim in, I'm riffing a quote there from uh, the American system scientist, Peter Senge, but it's really important that we understand that all of these systems are man-made mental constructs because once we can see that, we have the capacity then to design more inclusive, robust futures for ourselves And so what the work that you're doing, I feel really impassioned. I think you can probably all see the work that you're doing is groundbreaking because it allows us to see that these systems are man-made. They were thoughtfully designed at a point in history where these constructs were useful for the communities they served. And that's the point, isn't it, That, that actually from here on in, we get to... We have the agency to redesign these systems for the betterment of the people that we're choosing to serve.
1: 100 percent. That, that's exactly right. And I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point. because, So we call it again, a bit academic, but never mind. We call this historical reflexivity. Right. So that's the idea. And that's why we chose institutional theory, because institutional theory is great, but we know that there's actually a dark side of institutionalization. So there was actually a paper written, I think, in 1983 that Maggio and Powell, and it was called The Iron Cage of Rationality. Right, and it it goes back to the sociologist Max Weber, and that's the idea that once you set up these institutions like internal comms, like you know, this is how to have a meeting, and then it becomes second nature, and you do it. You know, that the problem is, is you get trapped in that. Yeah, and sometimes those institutions are good only for certain periods, but when the broader environment changes, such as COVID, yes, you know, or the rise of social media those institutions no longer become as functional as they originally were meant to be if that makes sense and then you have to change them you, you know i mean we have a word don't we we call them you know disruptors you know organizations like you know uh, tesla and you know airbnb and so forth and and i think you're absolutely right i think having an understanding of history is beneficial primarily for two reasons if you're an internal comms professional i think one we've already spoken about it gives you a sense of professional identity and pride and legitimacy you know we've been doing this for over 100 years we kind of know what we're doing you know and we have a right to have a voice within the organization and what we do adds value not just to your both, but so to broad society we know this we've seen these things going on but i think the other thing is understanding that what you do wasn't something you always did That if you go back 100 years, there were no team meetings. So you can't see it. That enables you to become more reflexive and thinking, well, if we haven't done it and then we did it, we can change it, if that makes sense. You're not trapped in these. And I think having a greater understanding of history enables you to re In the same way as the past is a foreign country, the future can be a foreign country. You can reimagine the way you do things and get out of that iron cage, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, we, we hope that our history will have. That's why, you know, Ford famously or infamously said history is bunk. yeah You know, history is a waste of time. Why well, look at the past? We should look at the future. But we say, no, that's not true. That by understanding the past, you can reimagine the future. And I think that's very important.
3: There's something very lovely in what you said, and I can't remember whether it was you, Michael, or you, Joe, sorry, about. Institutionalization, deinstitutionalization, reinstitutionalization, because that allows us to reimagine, doesn't it? It gives us permission to take the past, integrate it into the present, to forward think for the future in a far more enabling way than perhaps we might approach the future were we not to have had this conversation today so actually i know you guys have been working on the funding for this project for what seems like a long time but i'm like god the timing of it is so serendipitous because we are at this crossroads and actually what you've talked about today has just given me so many light bulb moments i'm very excited as you can probably tell (laughs)
4: Well, Kat, talking of light lightbulb moments, I, I guess we ought to come into land. And uh, there's been a huge amount of stuff which I think internal communicators will take away. I think every internal communicator who's listened to this has the right to hold their head slightly higher within their organizations uh, for a number of reasons. I think three key ones for me. One is we have got an identity. What, what you've said is we've got a hinterland as a profession, which I, I guess we all knew, but this is helping us understand it and, and have some points that we can discuss. I think the second thing is, you mentioned, I think, Joe and Michael, about the history of internal communications has been driven by growth. and I think that's a really important point, that with an when they want to grow and change, they can't do it without internal communication, which, of course, we know. But it's always good to have that reinforced and evidence. And the third thing is about the role of internal communication when it comes to engagement. And You've talked about the employee voice and how we get people connected with what the organisation is trying to do and get them motivated and inspired to do it. You've also incidentally given me three phrases. I'm now going to work into my conversations this weekend. Triangulation, I think it was, tri- tri- was it triangulation? Historical reflexivity, which is fantastic. And Joe, I think, was it democratic polity? I'm going to try work those into conversation.
1: Yeah, lovely. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. We, we did invent all of those, by the way. We invented some of them.
4: But. Oh, they're brilliant. But look, last question. As an internal communicator, listen to this. Based on the research you've done so far, the insights you have so far, what's one thing that you would like internal communication professionals to take away from, from this conversation, uh, Joe and Michael? Okay. yeah. Well, I think it's kind of quite nicely
2: headed towards that. And I think it's kind of maybe maybe what's kind of one of the main benefits of history overall is the fact it gives you a sense of perspective. And like Katz was saying, that there can be an assumption that things have kind of always been done more or less the way they've been done now. But you don't have to go too far back in history to see how kind of society function could be different way and that just gives you that sense of perspective and you start to think about well why do we do things the way that we do when they weren't done that way in the past and that can then help to break that iron cage of rationality when you realise that institutions have only been there for a short time relatively speaking and brought in for a particular reason it lets you kind of reimagine how things might be for the future so hopefully that might be the thing people can take away from it.
1: Yeah, that, absolutely, absolutely, and I think this project is going to do a, a, a lot of things. I think just knowing something that's been done for a long time, it makes it important. All human beings are naturally historical. Everything we do is history. The the, the language we speak has a history. We didn't always speak like this. The the jobs we do, the clothes we wear, everything we do is came at some point in the past. We are historical beings, and I, I think just having that knowledge of history, I think is quite comforting. So. There's one thing we haven't spoken about yet, um, but it's a really great idea. It was developed about 10 years ago, um, I think 2010, actually 13 years ago, in North America, mainly, I think, Canada and then the States, and it's called rhetorical history. And that's really, really interesting. And rhetorical history actually isn't about the past. It's about how the past is used in the present. And it's rhetorical. It's used through language to justify how we do things. yeah, And, you know... I've actually done a bit of work also on because there's another word we haven't mentioned. We've spoken a lot about history, but we haven't spoken about memory. Yes, how we remember things and how organizations remember things, institutional memory. And that memory is really, really, really important. Yeah. And I think one thing we're really interested to look at is how the past is used in the present how it's rhetorically used in order to legitimate and very interesting one big piece you know we've kind of alluded to this but haven't spoken about it in detail is organizational change organizations change constantly and often when they change they use the past to legitimate that change yeah to look forward you have to look back if that makes sense yeah so the past becomes rhetorical you use the past to rhetorically managers do this to justify this is why we're doing this and one thing we're really interested looking at is how that active organizational remembering is done through internal communication we remember together through communication if that makes sense and what we found looking at the archives particularly you know magazines which you know some of these magazines you look at unilever they've, they've had the magazine for i think 130 years that's just incredible when you think about that you know that they use that magazine to remember if that makes they have anniversary editions they remember certain people certain things and that i think is something again which we really hope will help organizations they, they can reflexively think about how they remember if that makes sense they, they can be aware of their remembering and that will help them
0: think about things Michael that is and Joe thank you so much that's amazing and and, and this communication will make me remember you know there's conversations and every time that we do and I'm and as IYC we're so proud to be partnering this project and um, for those listening in if you're a member of the institute there will be opportunities to get involved obviously next year we're going to be sharing this through our partnership with Michael and Joe and all the work that they're doing so watch this space more to come and also if you have the chance do go and have a look at their website as well to see uh, where they keep up going with all the blogs and all the content and to remember that 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 past can help shape our present and our future so thank you so much to Michael and Joe, and thank you everyone for listening
2: again
4: thank you for having us
0: we hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode if you have please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better more connected and inclusive future of work thanks for listening